0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast, created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive
1: Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network.
2: Hello and welcome to The Radioactive Show, produced at my home on unceded Wurundjeri lands for 3CR in Nar, Melbourne. I pay my respects to Wurundjeri elders past and present and welcome all First Nations people listening today. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. The Radioactive Show is brought to you with the support of the Ace Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. My name is AC. Today is a special Nakba Day show highlighting the recent struggle of Palestinians in Jerusalem against displacement and the settler colonial violence of the Israeli state. I'll share with you a talk given by Badur Hassan and Asil al who talk about the resistance of Sheikh Jarrah families to forced evictions from their homes in East Jerusalem. These talks were part of a webinar held by the Foundation for Middle East Peace called Jerusalem on the Verge, Dispossession and Violence in Sheikh Jarrah," which was hosted by the Foundation's president, Lara Friedman. We'll hear first from Asil Al-Beje, a legal researcher and advocacy officer at Al-Haq, a Palestinian human rights organisation, who talks about the case of four Palestinian families resisting eviction in Sheikh Jarrah
0: the four families consisting of 30 Palestinians in East Jerusalem were ordered to leave their homes by uh, Jerusalem uh, District Court uh, by 2nd of May. And they appealed this order uh, to the Supreme Israeli Supreme Court. And basically at the session uh, uh, on uh, a couple of days ago, the judge um, uh, gave the families a political, I would say this is a political offer, uh, for them to accept uh, that the settler organization has rights, uh, ownership rights to the uh, lands of uh, uh, Sheikh Jarrah, and so to be awarded or afforded a protected tenancy status and to pay rent for the settler organization. Now, immediately after this uh, political offer, the, the families issued their positions that they uh, reject such a political offer. And uh, as such today, uh, the decision uh, was delivered by the families to the uh, the, uh, Supreme Court and the families uh, again postponed the the hearing till uh, the 10th of May. Uh, But I would like to mention here like some important stuff about this Israeli court sessions is that first of all, these courts apply Israeli domestic law unlawfully Uh, which is uh, unlawfully transferred to the occupied East Jerusalem, and that these laws themselves are also discriminatory in their nature. These are part of Israel's apartheid regime. And in East Jerusalem, these laws are specifically used to dispossess and displace Palestinians furthermore. But also, the courts uh, themselves are very much discriminatory and untransparent Uh, uh, given the experience of the Sheikh Jarrah families, but also with all Jerusalemites who have been experiencing uh, a discriminatory um, uh, treatment by these courts. And I would like to say that when these families, uh, Sheikh Jarrah families resort to the the Israeli courts, they're not acknowledging uh, or trusting these courts, but rather they are uh, uh, trying to exhaust all the, the the means that they have in order to uh, at this time just to save time even uh, to have some time for them to, to be uh, to have the right fulfilled and in some cases also the the courts have uh, like evictions have happened while the courts were uh, cases were pending uh, maybe Budur has first hand experience working since she she has. I've uh, been working in East Jerusalem uh, longer than that. With the Shamasna family uh, in 2017, the, the uh, family w- was evicted while the, still an appeal was pending uh, in East Jerusalem. This is uh, also in Sheikh Jarrah in another part of the neighborhood. So I, I think it's important to keep all these things in mind while we're talking about the Israeli courts in, in occupied East Jerusalem.
2: That was Asil al Beje speaking about the role of the Israeli courts in evicting Palestinian families in East Jerusalem. Next, we hear from Badour Hassan, a Palestinian writer, journalist, and legal researcher based in Jerusalem. Badour follows on from Asil, explaining other evictions that are happening in Ishaqshara.
1: As Asil said, we are talking about four families that were supposed to be, I will say, displaced, on the 2nd of May. uh, In addition to these four families, an additional three families are also facing uh, displacement orders for August. Because in February, 2021, when the Israeli district court approved the decision of the magistrate court to displace all these families, we had two cases or we have two groups of cases almost just separated by a couple of weeks in both cases. The district court approved, upheld the decision previously issued by the magistrate courts. So, and in many cases, we're talking about very similar cases in nature. Uh, we're talking about refugee families who've been living in Sheikh since 1956, and who've been embroiled in a decades-long legal battle, and who've been living, hovering under this threat of ev- displacement for decades. In cases, you have children who've lived their entire lives with this weapon of displacement, just um, directed at their chests, really, and have known nothing but court date, court, court dates, and when the court is expecting, expected to displace us. So this is the wider context. So when we're talking about these specific three fam- four families that will be displaced on that. Will be displaced soon, and the the additional three families. And in addition, we have the Sabah family, whose case is a little bit different. So it's not being heard in along with these seven families, but they're also part of the of the case. So we're talking about more than seventy people, including many children uh, who are facing the threat of displacement as we speak, and. um, and unlike previous cases when the Israeli settler organization, specific, specifically Nahalat Shim'on, which is registered in the United States and received exemptions from pay, paying taxes uh, of certain exemptions, sorry, uh, as a, a supposedly charitable organization because it's registered as a charitable organization in the United States, so when Nahalat Shim'on comes and displaces families, they usually kind of have a a typical pattern of displacing one family at a time. And since 2009, with the exception of the Shamasni case, which happened in 2017, which is a bit different because Shamasinis are were not refugee families, and they were in a different part of Sheikh Jarrah, not in the Kermel Ja'ouni area. All the cases we're talking about, they're all in the Kermel Ja'ouni area. Uh, but the, the, apart from the Shamasni case, we've seen no... Uh, displacement since 2009. And it was believed that partly due to political pressure, also largely due to the mobilization by residents, by Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah. But now the difference is that the settler organization, Tahlat is not really waiting anymore. They really want to do this displacement by droves. And this is one major difference between what we're seeing now and what we've seen uh, years before that we're talking about a huge number of families, which which means that the whole dynamics is changing because we're not just talking about an individual family. We're talking literally about entire families, dozens of residents, entire lives being torn apart from where they have lived for decades.
2: You're listening to the radioactive show, created for 3CR and distributed across so called Australia on the Community Radio Network. Badur Hassan continues next, speaking about nightly protests at the Damascus Gate in East Jerusalem.
1: Since the start of Ramadan, uh, the Muslim month of fasting, and basically, which means um, two weeks into April. There have been daily nightly clashes, let's say between Palestinian youth, specifically in Damascus Gate and protest at Israeli measures meant of blocking people from arriving at the, uh, st- the steps of Damascus Gate and the momentum that these protests have created in Damascus gates didn't just stay there. We all, all, the, all the youngsters who go to the protests in Damascus gate, many of whom had no prior political involvement or direct political involvement in the sense that they didn't go to protests. Because when we talk about politics, politics really infiltrates every single aspect of Palestinian lives. So we don't really have the luxury not to be political in the broader sense of the word. So due to the calls made by families in Sheikh Jarrah and the massive effort they have played both locally in mobilizing and in inviting people and calling on people, staging even concerts in Sheikh Jarrah by taking advantage of the fact that unlike in other months, Jerusalem usually sleeps early, but in Ramadan, it changes. So people stay up for late. It's a very public month. Um, many things, many activities are held after eight, nine p.m. So the families in Sheikh Jarrah very cleverly took advantage of this fact and started calling on people to join them to watch shows, to as a as a statement, political statement that we're staying here uh, um, in uh, retaliation fest you'd hear settlers starting uh, play loud music, very annoying music from their speakers, from the houses that they have occupied, particularly the house of Nabil al-Kurd. Uh, so this is one of the centers in which they play their very loud and very annoying music in order to hijack any attempt of Palestinians to gather, to protest, to do even the most civic activity, which is just sitting there, having their iftar, which is the meal of breaking the fast together, publicly in Sheikh Jarrah. And especially in the last week, this has developed. So instead of just holding these evening uh, gatherings, the the momentum, as I said, uh, went, morphed from these just daily evening protests in Damascus Gate and reached Sheikh Jarrah, particularly because there have been attempts to block Palestinian youth from reaching Damascus Gate. So it's instead of just going back to their homes, people started joining in and protesting. In addition, we've seen also, and this is one of the most really lively, inspiring things about the protests that you don't just have Palestinians from Jerusalem coming, coming and Palestinian from neighboring uh, villages in Jerusalem like Isawiyyeh, like Shafat like Wadi, Wadi jos you also have Palestinians from Haifa from all over historic Palestine from Haifa, from Umm al-Fahim from taib which is these are areas in northern some southern or northern historic Palestine coming, some of whom just using public transport and coming many university students, college students who are coming and joining and you also have people and the really beautiful thing is how this translates into the chanting of people so you have chants that are symbolic to some area of Palestine being repeated in Sheikh Jarrah you have all the symbolic the symbolic and iconic chants slogans the famous songs of uh, that are sung some of them that were adapted to the case of Sheikh Jarrah and, and, and this is how Palestinians started resisting these attempts especially the, there was a massive protest on Saturday which gathered many Palest- Palestinians from all over historic Palestine came and after that it continued every night despite repression and when we talk about repression by Israel we talk about sound use of sound grenades by the Israeli border police obviously the use of the skunk uh, truck which is the foul smell. Water. Usually it it was first used in in Damascus Gate and they transferred this uh, truck that throws fire the skunk water. Uh, They spray the homes with skunk, they spray protesters with skunk, uh, and on certain occasions they also even use uh, tear gas. Uh, so these are the ways and obviously with the horses and whenever you start standing, singing and even raising the Palestinian flag, because in Jerusalem, the very action, the very act of raising the Palestinian flag is perceived by Israeli occupation police as a threat to their very, their very fake sovereignty over this area. So whenever the Palestinian flag is raised, you will have the... Uh, Hordes of Israeli soldiers attacking whoever who's raising the flag, brutally beating protesters and we've seen some of the scenes in where Palestinian protesters, unarmed protesters were uh, beaten brutally, were harassed, were uh, and were detained. Uh, so this is this is the way it has been. And, and I think that it will continue today. Also, after iftar, we will be gathering in Sheikh Jarrah and also every day just to keep to carry on, to keep this momentum going and to say that the case of Sheikh Jarrah is not just the case of one neighborhood. It's not even the case of one city, which is Jerusalem. It's a Palestinian case because it's a paradigmatic of the entire Palestinian struggle for liber- liberation and decolonization.
2: That was Boudour Hassan, explaining how the resistance in Sheikh Jarrah is connected with the wider struggle for Palestinian self-determination and decolonization. Now we'll hear from Asil Al-Beje, who responds to a question about the effectiveness of these protests.
0: Uh, I would say that the goal of, uh, of the message of these protests is first of all to stop the, the evictions themselves, but overall to protest what Israel has always been doing, which is uh, in Jerusalem, specifically, to empty the city from from its Palestinian residents, and to ensure, as they publicly state shamelessly, that they want to ensure the demographic uh, composition of the city is in favor of Israeli Jewish domination.
1: I would like to, uh, to add one thing regarding the efficacy of these protests. All the time, it's w- when we saw the way the youth in Damascus Gate removed the barriers and the barricades. It really was brought back the memories of those days in 2017, when the youth also managed to uh, march through the gates and open and through the gate and in their thousands, even carrying some martyrs' parents on their shoulders. And really the, the, that moment, to, although the makeup of the protesters was a bit different in 2017 to what it was, uh, in the Damascus Gate protests, but it really was reminiscent. It was also reminiscent in 2014 in the protests that Jerusalem saw after the of the brutal killing of Muhammad Abu Ghadir in Shafat. Uh, We've seen also some protests in October 2015. One thread that unifies these protest movements, these many of which were really spontaneous, leader, largely leaderless, is that they are about reclaiming the public space. And in Jerusalem it's a big thing because you don't really, one of the efforts that have been really strengthened by Israel is the way to control to dominate the public space and to just prevent Palestinians from expressing themselves politically publicly artistically in the public space so it's always been a battle over the public space over who dominates the public space who controls it because it also applies to who controls the narrative and whose voices are heard so, and in, in a sense, the protest in Sheikh Jarrah is an extension. Now, we're not naive to think that just a couple, I mean, couple of hundreds protesting might prevent Israel from carrying on its, its uh, displacement plan. We know that we're, we know the power and the might of the Israeli army, the Israeli police in terms of sheer brute force and we know that it's absolutely asymmetric because the most we can uh, I mean uh, use is in addition to our voices is that for the youth to throw stones or bottles or, or and that's it really so it's not even a asymm- it's not even symmetric uh, in this sense but the really important thing is that it, it's emboldening more and more people to join and it's making this case a public case So it's absolutely putting pressure and also in a sense it's also exposing the fragility of the Israeli army because because, despite its sheer brute force and its power, when you see that these soldiers are scared of a flag. And when you see that the very fact that we're standing there and singing is just enough to scare them and to bring uh, all these uh, special unit forces and border police and to use all these weapons. It also gives us more, uh, it's, it's even, it's hard to say, but it's, it inspires even more courage among people because if you're so fragile, if you're so weak, then you can't really intimidate us, despite all that you've done. But we definitely know that just these protests are not enough. They need to be joined and backed up by genuine pressure pressure that he is, not just uh, lip service, that supports these protests. But we also simultaneously realise that nothing will be changed and no displacement will be prevented unless these protests continue and manage to gather steam onward.
2: That was Bedour Hassan stating that protests in Sheikh Shekshara can only be effective if they're backed up with genuine pressure on the Israeli state. Next up, webinar host Lara Friedman asked Badur about the Palestinian community in Sheikh Jarrah.
0: So can you talk about
2: the population of Sheikh Jarrah? Who lives there? How long have they lived there? How did they get there? Um, and, and of course, Sheikh Jarrah was part of the area of East Jerusalem that was annexed by Israel illegally in 1967. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about what that meant for Palestinians who were already living in Sheikh Jarrah.
1: So I will probably start from one story, but I think it's her story is the story that um, is common to so many families in Sheikh Jarrah. She is Rifqal Kurd. Uh, she passed away last year uh, at over at the age of over one hundred years old. She was uh, a buoyant, very passionate uh, young woman in nineteen forty eight when in April, so in in days like these, she and her family were displaced from the coastal city of Haifa. And Rifq al-Kurd moved to Jerusalem first. And in 1956, like the other uh, 28 families, uh, she became obviously refugee, like uh, internally displaced. But she was unlike other families who were displaced and remained in historic Palestine uh, in in the areas occupied by Israel and then turned and called Israel. She moved to Jerusalem, which was then to East Jerusalem, which was then under the Jordanian control. So in 1956, UNRWA, the United Nations Refugee Refugee Organization for for Work, the Agency for Work and Refugees, uh, and the Jordanian government, they leased this piece of land. And they agreed the the, family, the refugee families agreed to give up their refugee card in exchange of uh, housing. And this has to do also with the terrible housing crisis that afflicted many uh, Palestinian refugees and many. And, and it was a very difficult decision to make. And it's not an easy when, when a refugee is asked about to make this decision between whether to stay a refugee or to accept a land and housing. It's very easy to put, I mean, I've heard this from many people that they regret that their parents had taken their decision. So obviously it's impossible to put yourself in, in their shoes. They had so many uh, things to take into account. But then these families decided that it's better to live stably and in, to have a house of your own rather than just stay and live in a refugee camp for the entirety of their lives. So these families, these 28 families, agreed to uh, exchange their refugee status for housing. The, according to the articles of the agreement between Jordan, Jordan, the Onra, and the families, these families were supposed to get ownership over the uh, land and over the houses after three years from constructing and building these houses. This never materialized. Obviously, in 1967, Israel completed its occupation of all of Jerusalem. So this part, the all of Jerusalem now is under Israeli control uh, and occupation and subsequent annexation also, including these refugee families that lived in Sheikh Jarrah Immediately after the occupation in 1967, one of the first homes that was were occupied was the Shanti family home because they were outside of Palestine at the time. So uh, they declared it as abandoned property. Abandoned means that they prevented people from returning to this home and took over it to pave the way for a series of displacement. Starting from the early 1970s, Israel decided that this area, the, the claim was that these, the land on which these houses were built, that in the end of the 19th century, they were sold to uh, Jewish families living there. Uh, there is no, this is one big contested issue Regarding ownership and the issue of ownership has not been sealed in the court, so there has not been a decision. What we know is that the, the responsible for absentee property registered the land in Sheikh Jarrah in the name of settler organizations, based on what we Palestinians argue based on false documents. That have not proven, and in fact, uh, the families have brought documents from Istanbul, from Turkey, that show that some of these uh, documents that the settlers brought are not are, are forged documents. But it's, it's a very, it's, it's a massive issue. And I think one of the successes, in a sense, of the settlers was to transform this issue from a struggle over land to merely bureaucratic uh, property real estate issue when it's not. The real reason that these settler organizations led by Nahlat Shema'un right now want to take advantage and want to control these homes in Sheikh Jarrah is the strategic position of Sheikh Jarrah. It's the gateway. It's it's in the north of the old city, north to the old city. It's a very strategic area. And it's uh, also it's kind of one of the it, it connects east. To west as well. So it's a strategic, just like, for example, Silwan, it's a very strategic area because it's very close to Alaqsa Mosque. So the strategic place of, of Sheikh Jarrah is the reason that's pushing settlers to try and dominate it. And then, obviously, you can always use whatever pretext that the law allows you to use in order to take advantage of the uh, loopholes that you have in order to control these houses and this land. And since the 19, since 1970s, and, and specifically 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 since the early 1980s, because some families not knowing the Israeli law and tricked by one Israeli lawyer, because at the time, Palestinian lawyers were not allowed, were on strike, and they didn't recognize the legitimacy of the Israeli court, so they didn't represent Palestinian families. So one of the Israeli lawyers uh, compelled some of the families, not all the families, 18 families, to sign documents that uh, say that they accept the claim of ownership made by the settlers, and they, they agreed to be considered protected tenants, which means just pay uh, pay rent to the settler organization. And, and the problem with that, that agreement is that those who signed it did not really recognize what in, it entailed because they couldn't speak Hebrew, because they trusted the lawyer, and it turned out that they were tricked. And all of these sophistications and legal mishmash Led us to where we are, or where we started off at the early 2000s, when uh, efforts by the by Nahlat which is the main uh, settler organization, which is also government supported, all that to make it clear. So just it's not just one charitable organization. Uh, it left to its own devices. Uh, it's it's left us with the first placements that took place in 2008 and 2009. On the one hand, you have Palestinians internally displaced, Palestinian refugees who have been displaced from their own land since 1948, including families, as I said, from Haifa, and families who came from Yefa, and families who are from Al-Baqa, which is in the western part of Jerusalem, and they can't go back to their homes, and they are not granted the right to return to their homes. And on the other hand, you have on fuzzy and on unproven proper uh, ownership claims, you have Israelis who just the, the very fact that they claim that they've been that their land has been theirs since the 19th century. The Israeli law allows them to go, supposedly, to go back or to take over the land. And I think Asil can talk about these how you have this system, this legal segregation, this legal apartheid system in which one population based on ethnicity and religion have the right to go back to their homes and the other doesn't.
2: That was Bedor Hassan speaking about the apartheid system Israel is operating under in which rights are based on ethnicity and religion. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show, sharing talks given by Badur Hassan and Asil al about the resistance to forced evictions in Jarrah and settler colonial violence in East Jerusalem. These talks were part of a webinar held by the Foundation for Middle East Peace called Jerusalem on the Verge, Dispossession and Violence in Jarrah," which was hosted by the Foundation's president, Lara Friedman. You can hear more news and current affairs from Palestine on 3CR's show Palestine Remembered with podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Palestine. That's it for me for today. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR at my home in Nar, Melbourne, and broadcast across these stolen lands known as Australia through the Community Radio Network. You'll find Radioactive Show Podcasts online at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. And you can get in touch with us by calling the 3CR office on 03 9419 8377. Thanks for listening and here's to a nuclear-free and peaceful future.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.